0: Um, I think that Mr. Liam is passing out outlines. It's a very thin outline, very, but very followable outline. I mean, if I do say so myself. Um, so if you don't have one, raise your hand and Liam will get them to you. Otherwise, they're in the back. All right. And before we begin, don't panic. All right. I know that the seats are in a different position. Okay? And I know Tevia in your head is singing tradition, but can I just con- encourage you, if you're going to write an email to the deacons, wait till Thursday, okay? Just process it. Just, uh, Michael say he's, he's, he's writing one in his head right now. All right, just, just process it, okay? And then maybe by Thursday you'll be like, Nah, I, I don't need to write an email to the deacons, all right? And if you do write an email to the deacons, don't CC or BCC me, all right? Just leave me out of it. Let's pray. Father God, we love You and we thank You for this day. Uh, We don't celebrate the resurrection of Jesus once a year at Easter. We celebrate it every seven days at the first day of the week. And we are reminded that Jesus Christ has done the work to bring His people into the rest of God. That eschatological Sabbath. That eternal Sabbath. And that's what we're celebrating this morning. We will celebrate it in our worship. We will celebrate it even in this Sunday school as we hear more about it and as we talk about it, as we discuss it, even as we move into that little coffee time, Father, we'll certainly be talking about things going on in our life, but hopefully we'll also be glowing about the eschatological promise that is ours in Jesus Christ. He has broken through into the heavenly places. He is seated at Your right hand. We pray this morning that once again, we can have ourselves feel filled with the wind of the eschaton the hope of the eschaton and that we would never grow weary in doing good and we would never grow weary in hearing that same message for it is clearly part of the gospel the message of redemption Father, You have saved us through the work of Jesus Christ. You are saving us in Your preser- preserving work, and You will save us on that final day when You make all things new. So remind us of these things this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 3. And I'm going to read in your hearing verses 7-19. through 19, And bef- as you're turning there, I just want to say this, uh, this series on Hebrews has just been phenomenal for me. Uh, not only in preparation, but in hearing the other pastors and pastoral interns teach through it. I hope that it's been a benefit to you. And one of the things I always say, if you haven't heard me say it, I'm going to say it right now. Uh, Of all the books in the New Testament, there's two books that are more Baptist than any other book. And one of them is the book of Galatians and the other one is the book of Hebrews. It's very hard to read the book of Hebrews and not be a Baptist. It's very hard not to read the book of Hebrews and not believe in the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant and to conclude from that that the old covenant and the new covenant are different. They're not the same. So we're going to get a taste of that this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Let's listen carefully to the word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As they swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you God's people in all ages have a tendency to be grass watchers grass watchers I'm not talking about the grass in your yard I'm talking about the grass on the other side of the fence you know the phrase the grass always seems greener what on the other side and I just want you to think with me for a moment because we are Americans who like to compare ourselves by how green our grass looks and how wonderful our yard looks, especially compared to our neighbor. And as you think about that, you're looking over and I just, I just imagine with a little sanctified imagination, oh wow, look how lush that green is! that grass is. It's that St. Augustine grass, right? It's got shallow roots, but it's so fluffy and it's just so glorious and look how green it is. And, and look, there's no brown spots. And look, there's no crabgrass. There's no, none of that Bermuda grass. By the way, in California, Bermuda grass is a bad thing. And I found over here, like, people like it. They actually grow it and, like, try to, you know, resuscitate it. And I, I've never understood that. But the people of God, that's a good metaphor for us being perennial grass watchers we are always looking at someone else's situation. We are always looking into someone else's family. We're always looking at somebody else's job. We're always looking at somebody else's church. We're always looking at somebody else's elders. We're always always looking at somebody else's congregation. We're always looking at somebody else's car. And, And we don't see the good things in our life, but we are keenly aware of all the good things in their life. That is what this passage is about. And in a nutshell, what this passage is saying is don't harden your hearts, but persevere in the end in what God has given you in Jesus Christ. That's that's what this whole thing is about. Now, let me set this up for you. If you come back to chapter 3, I want you to notice in verse 5 that he says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, that language is important, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See the distinction: servant, son—two different things. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, I, I want you to know. I, I want to show you uh, right out of the bat this morning how, on three different horizons, we as the people of God—first Israel. Uh, in the time of Moses, and then secondly, the Essenes in the first century that were uh, being tempted to go back to the shadows and the types, and then us today, how we tend to be grass watchers that are looking for the better things somewhere else, okay? I want you to notice that right in verse 5, it says that Moses was testifying of things that were to be spoken later. Later. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Does anybody know? What was the whole Mosaic economy meant to point to? It was meant to point to Christ. And that's, that's the contrast that he makes in, later in verse 6. Moses was a servant. Jesus was a son. Now, what was in the Mosaic economy that people were looking forward to, and when they did not get it, they were unhappy? Well, number one, the land, right? They, they were promised the land, Okay, they were promised the land, that they were going to come into this land, and they were going to have peace from their enemies, and they were going to have, here's this word, rest. Rest. That's a ceasing from striving. That is, no longer are you going to deal with conflict. Every Israelite's going to sit under his olive tree, and they're all going to have their own house, and they're going to have their kids, both human and, and livestock, okay? Everyone's going to be content. Here's this promise that was put out there, Right? Now, I want you to read that promise through verse 5. Moses testified of things that were to be spoken of later. Rest, in the Israelites' mind, was on one level, but Moses was, though he was speaking of that in that economy and in that covenant, he was really speaking of something greater, which was to come. And I'll just tell you the answer up front. That's the eschatological rest, the new heavens and the new earth. That's really what he was looking at. That's really what he was pointing to. Let let me now look at verse 5 through. uh, uh, Let me look at the sacrificial system through the lens of verse 5 again. Moses sets up the sacrificial system where all these animals are being slaughtered, blood is being spilt, and the idea is that atonement is being granted, a covering of sin, right? But it's interesting, as the book of Hebrews will later say, that the priests never sat down. They never sat down. Why did they never sit down? Because their work was was ongoing. It always needed to be done. You want to know why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can never sacrifice for sin, can never atone for sin. But it says that Jesus Christ, what did He do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? That's who He was pointed to. The blood of bulls and goats was a type. It was a picture to point to the greater blood, which is Jesus Christ. So I want you to see, built into the Mosaic economy, The idea that there is the real thing and the faux thing, there is the real rest and the faux rest. Okay, faux f a u x. Okay, not the the authentic thing. It's you could say fake. We we prefer the term type. It's meant to be a type. It's meant to point. Right. So now I want to show you this how it fleshes itself out in the life of Israel. Here in Hebrews chapter three, verses seven through nineteen. The author is quoting from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is in turn a commentary on Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through, I don't know, something like 10 or 11. And what happened in Exodus chapter 17 is the incident at Massah and Meribah. And what happened there? Well, Moses brings them to a place and there's no water, right? There's no water. And they're complaining. They're not happy, so they quarrel with Moses, right? And Moses has to uh, tap a rock and bring water out. But, but the issue there is that they weren't content with what God seemed to be giving. Now, here's what I want you to see. Please listen to me very carefully, okay? Number one, <laughs> it says that they were quarreling with Moses in Exodus chapter 17, verse 2. But really, they were quarreling with God. It says, Moses says, why are you testing God? But really, it was not God who was being tested. It was the people of Israel who were being tested, okay? How were they being tested? Well, what was being tested is their contentment with God no matter what comes. Please listen to me very carefully. Their contentment and their joy with God no matter what comes, What were the children of Israel tempted to think and believe and act upon? That God was not good. He was not going to fulfill His promises. He wasn't going to take care of them. And we know from the history of Israel that what do they do? What do they do? They start thinking back to how wonderful things were in Egypt. What were they in Egypt? What was their status? They were slaves. And they think that that was a better thing. Talk about a skewed perspective right? So with Israel, they were looking to the foe thing, the land, the water in the moment, the, the, the needs that they had in the moment, rather than looking at the long view, which is the Lord is going to take care of you. The Lord is using this thing, and I'm going to dig down deeper in this in just a moment. He's using this thing to purify you. This is not about testing God. This is about testing you, So here's the thing, Israel, do you want want what what the types and shadows of the Mosaic Covenant are meant to point to long-term, or do you want the the, the sign? Do you want the sign, or do you want the real thing? Do you want the sign, or do you want the real thing? They wanted the sign. They wanted the sign, and that's why it says that they didn't enter the land because of what? Unbelief. They did not believe that God was truly going to bring them into the land. And we'll see that, that faith is, committed, is, is connected to obedience in just a moment. So on one horizon, what we're dealing with when we think about the faux thing or the faux rest and the true rest is in the context of Israel, okay, it's what do you want? Do you want the, 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 the sign or do you want the real thing? And if you want the real thing, you're not going to harden your hearts and you're not going to settle for second best, you're going to wait even through the hard things, through the conflict and through the strife for what God is bringing you. That's what you're going to do. You're not going to harden your hearts. But now, here's a second horizon I want you to think about. And the second horizon is if we go all the way back to the first century with the Essenes, remember those who were committed to the Essene theology and then they get converted, right? They get converted. Now, what are they dealing with? They're dealing with something similar with Israel, but it's not 100% the same. At that time, they have Jesus Christ and New Testament theology, Pauline theology, the whole New Testament that says, okay, Christ came, he died, one Messiah, two comings. The first coming is to take care of sin. The second coming is to judge the living and the dead and bring in the eschaton. So that's the New Testament model. But then they've got the Essene theology. Remember a few weeks ago we looked at it? It's not one Messiah, two comings, it's two Messiahs, two Messiahs, a priestly Messiah and a kingly Messiah, and they're all under an angel, angel of the Lord, which, by the way, just little tangential thought real quick, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but long time ago, in Judaistic thought, in the teaching of Judaism, they had this teaching that the Jews hide now, they don't like people to know about it, but it was the teaching or the doctrine of the two powers in heaven, the two powers in heaven. The Jews used to think this. And the two powers in heaven were God and the angel of the Lord. And both of these, in a mysterious way that they didn't understand, were thought to be God, okay? But they had to get rid of that because they're monotheists, right? And this, at least on the surface, gives the impression that there's two gods, and they couldn't believe that, and they don't believe that, And so what they did is they just demoted this angel of the Lord as just a created angelic being. Now, we as Christians, if you've ever heard me teach on the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, who is it? Well, it's the preincarnate Christ, you see. It is God, right? He is God. And so the way we solve that as Christians is this is what we call, you could call it a Christophany or a Theophany. Uh, Fani just means appearance, okay, and Christ is short for Christ, and Theos is short for God, so it's an appearance of Christ or an appearance of God. He reveals Himself in a particular way, right? So remember, coming back to it, the Essenes are dealing with these two different eschatologies, the eschatology of Christianity and the eschatology of the Essenes. Now, for the Essenes, you've got these two messiahs that aren't necessarily God. They're just political figures, Okay, but under the leadership of this angel, you know what they're going to do? They're going to listen to me. They're going to come in and they're going to put down the Roman occupiers. Right. And they're going to judge all the enemies of Israel and they're going to bring in the eschatological kingdom. And it's going to start in Qumran where the elect are there in their little monastery. And God is going to use them to fight the forces of evil, fight Rome, and the kingdom's going to come. That was a very political, very earthy eschatology. You might say it this way. God would send His saviors in and we would win the culture wars. That's what they were looking at. Now, listen to me. In the same way that the Israels wanted the immediate and didn't want to wait for the real thing that was further out, so the these former Essenes who had become Christians who were thinking about going back, they're like, Well, on this side with Christianity, you've got to wait for Jesus to come back, and we're probably going to suffer until then. I mean, that's, that's what the New Testament seems to say, you know. I mean, not that we're not going to have good days, we're going to have good days, but we're going to suffer, you know, that through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul says. Or over here, I could have this eschatology. Well, it's almost like an opti- opti- optimistic eschatology. You know, God's going to send his. His hammers, and they're going to put down the Romans, and the kingdom's going to be now. Well, I, I mean, this is more immediate, right? This is this is more tangible, right? It almost sounds like a first-century version of post-millennialism, okay? And so they're they're drawn toward that. This is more immediate. This is more tangible. But this is more ethereal. This is more spiritual. So it seems, right? So they're being pulled that way. And what is the author of Hebrews saying? He said, "Look, look, 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 look." Moses was a servant. Jesus is the Son. You need to continue in your faith in the Son. Not these two Messiahs with an angel over them, but the Son who is Messiah, who is God. Everything is in Jesus. You must look to Jesus and wait for Him, for His eschatological timetable, and He will come when He's good and ready, and what you need to do is persevere till the end. So that was the Essene struggle. Okay. Now let me take you down to a third level and that's us. Do we struggle with the same thing? We struggle with the same thing, but it looks different, right? The Israelites were tempted to fall away. The Essenes, the former Essenes that had become Christians were tempted to fall away. Are we as a people, Christians, here at Grace Covenant Church, are we tempted to fall away? Absolutely we are. Absolutely we are. What do we look at? Listen to me. What do we look at? Well, you might look at conflict in your life that comes from being a Christian. If you're a Christian that's trying to be faithful, you know what's always going to be swirling around you in some way, shape, or form? Conflict. Conflict with your family, your extended family. Conflict with your immediate family. Not always. There's some Christians that are, eight, you know, eight-generation Christians, and they, the, the conflict's not as high. But even then, there's some, because different generations are going to do things differently. Conflict with people in your workplace, conflict with people in your church, conflict with other sections of Christianity, there's always going to be conflict. And here's where we make the mistake. We say, well, it ought not to be that way. It ought not to be that way. And because it is that way, it must, it must not be right. And when we do that, we're making the mistake of conflating ought and is. Okay? ought and is you know that in the first century even Paul said there must be divisions Paul said that you know that Jesus said in the book of John I have not come to bring peace I've come to bring a sword now it's true that in the same book of John he uh, in an earlier place says I have not come to bring uh, judgment but I've come to bring peace and Johannine scholars have always been trying to figure out you know how do we reconcile these two it's really easy to reconcile them When Jesus says, I've not come to bring a sword, I've come to bring peace, or I've not come to bring judgment, I've come to bring peace, he's talking about that vertical relationship between man and God. Jesus is the mediator. He came to reconcile man and God. He came to bring peace. He came to bring reconciliation. But now, when you look at this horizontal level and you flesh that vertical relationship out with other people, Jesus came to bring a sword, he came to bring division. There's going to be division. There's going to be division in your family. There's going to be division in your relationships all over the place. So come back to the point, we say, we look at all this conflict and we're just like, man, wouldn't it be easier if I just pulled the plug? Just stop being a Christian. Don't have to fight about Jesus being the only God. I you no, know, just be a liberal. They're not Christians anyways, right? So just, you know, be a liberal and just say, you know, all, all, all truth is the same truth. There are no more like you, whatever. You do you. You do you. And I want you to think that's when we're looking at the grass that's on the other side and we don't see the, gray, the, the brown spots. We don't see the crabgrass. But if we look a little further, we'll see it. Because do people that don't adopt Christianity, do they not have any strife and, and problems? They have just as many problems as we do. You, know, you talk to atheists, you talk to agnostics, and they're like, yeah, I don't want my children to grow up and steal people's wallets, but I don't believe in moral absolutes. You've got a big problem. You've got a big problem. I've had people in my home, not not you, I'm talking about unbelievers, okay? Unbelievers that I love. My wife and I have lovingly tried to engage in this hard task of evangelism with them, right? And we push them on the moral argument, right? Because atheists and, and agnostics, they don't have morality. They have a faux morality. They have a subjective morality. They don't have an absolute morality because they don't have a moral law giver. And when I try to press them with it, they get mad. They get up and they, they literally leave. I, ne- I need to go. I, ne- I need to get out of here. There's still strife there. Wherever you go, there's strife, right? Or, you know, you say, I, um, I, you know, in, 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 in my Christian life, you know, there's just, there's just so much sadness. There's so much death. There's so much. You think that leaving your Christianity is going to take that away? It's not going to take it away. Wherever you go, you're going to find these things, whether you proclaim Christ or not. And that's why I come back to we are perennial grass watchers. We keep looking on that other side and we think, oh, it's better, oh, it's better. And it's not better. The question is, what are you looking at? That is the question. What are you looking at? So here's the thing. We can harden our hearts in a number of different ways, but I want to talk to you this morning about a few ways that we can harden our hearts. Okay? Roman numeral number two, or ro- number, number three, three ways that we can harden our hearts. And remember, we're thinking of these three horizons, but now we're focusing on that third horizon, us. How do we, as Christians in the New Covenant era, how do we get tempted to walk away from Jesus Christ? How do we get tempted to harden our hearts? Because I'm telling you, beloved, we, we are prone to this. We are prone to harden your hearts, and we may, you may be hardening your heart in a way that you didn't realize, and I want to just give you some things from the text today uh, to, to, um, to think about. Number one, one way we can harden our heart is by not prioritizing matters of the heart. I want you to look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then I want you to jump down to verse 13. It's so important that he says it again. Excuse me, verse uh, 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What is one way that we harden our hearts? By putting off until tomorrow what should be taken care of today. Today. That's why two times, what does he say? Today, 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 today. Today, if you hear his voice, today, deal with it. Deal with sin and conflict in other relationships. Deal with sin in your own life. Deal with sin in your own heart today. But what do we do? We, 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 we don't deal with it. We put it off. We put off wrestling with sin. We put off conflict. We put off discontentment. And we think it'll take care of itself. It'll take care of itself. I've said this a million times. I'll say it again. There are two types of people when it comes to conflict. Those who want to, uh, there's flight and there's fight. People that want to fight. The people want to enter the controversy. They want to deal with it. They want to go for it. And then there's flight. People that want to run away from it. Now, both of those have strengths and weaknesses. The, the people over here that are flight, th- these are the people that tend to be, it's not fair to say peacemakers because there's, there's peacemakers on both sides, but they're the, they're the kind of people that, that don't like conflict. And whenever we say that, I'm just like, are there people out there that like? I guess there are people that like conflict, okay? But I don't think anybody who has their heart in the right place likes conflict. But there are people who are willing to deal with conflict because they want to do what needs to be done to get the elephant out of the room and to deal with things the way that Christ has taught us. But on this side, you have flight, and these are people that they 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 are under the mistaken notion. Please listen to me very carefully. That if we just ignore it, it will go away. If we just ignore it, it will go away. Yesterday was a wonderful day in the Henson household. Uh, my dog has just made a mess of our house. And there is, you know, that what's that song by Dashboard Confessionals? Your hair is every... That's my dog. My dog's hair is everywhere, okay? It's everywhere. And so we, we just, it was a Henson project yesterday. We we cleaned all the carpets, and, and my dog started getting naughty, and she was getting up on the couch and leaving hair everywhere, and so I'm like, all right, got to clean this. So where was I going with this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. So we're, we're, we're lifting up carpets, and I'm just finding dog hair everywhere, and there's this, there's this rug right by our slider door. And uh, my wife has picked it up a few times the last few weeks, and there was just dirt everywhere. And she's like, uh-uh, "I ain't dealing with it." She just put it back down. <laughs> put it back down, right? And then she came to me. She's like, "You, <laughs> you gotta deal with all that dirt." I don't know. So I'm like, "All right, I'm your Huckleberry. I'll do it." So I, 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 I get this, I get this rug, and I pull. And this rug is just decimated. I mean, it's just gone. I mean, it's like thin, right? You know, you buy them, and they're like this thick. And then life happens. And, and then when I, I put it out and put it on the branch and the tree outside, and I came back and I swept up all the dirt, right? And I got all the dirt, and I'm like, there's still stuff on my tiles. What is that? The rubber part on the bottom of the rug had like melted onto the tile, okay? That's how bad it is. That, and, but that is a metaphor for life. Uh, what some people do is just like, just put it under the rug. Just put it under the rug. Just kick the can down the road. And here, I want you to listen to me. Here's the mistaken assumption that we make when we do this. We say, if I just fly away into the wilderness like a bird and I just forget all about it, then when I get back, nobody's going to think about it. Nobody's going to talk about it. It's not going to be an issue. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. You know what has happened? We have swept it into the the, the, uh, under the rug of our hearts. And you know what's still there? It's still brewing if we don't do something about it. The resentment and the anger and the bitterness and, and the conflict, it's all still there and it's never going to go away unless it's dealt with. Never. Now, I am not foolish and I'm not naive and I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't mean, on the other hand, that dealing with it is always going to come out perfectly. We're You know, every T is crossed and every uh, I is dotted and everybody's happy. I've been doing conflict resolution for a long time, and what I can tell you is it is very rare when two parties go into a room with a third-party mediator and they come out and this party got everything that they wanted and this party got everything that they wanted and the mediator got everything that he wanted, you know? It's like, you know, uh, uh, Michael Scott, you know, win, win, win. Like, everybody wins, right? That, like, almost never happens. You know what is more typical? Typical. Listen to me, you go into these arbitration things and one party gets a little bit of what they wanted, the other party gets a little bit of what they wanted, and because the mediator is trying to deal with both sides, both parties hate the mediator, (laughs) okay? (laughs) But you know what? Mature parties that are in conflict that get a little bit of what they want, they also go out with this. Listen to me very carefully, and this is so important for where we're at as a church right now. Brother, sister, we're not going to agree on this. We're just not. We've gone over this. We've gone over this 26 ways from Tuesday. And you see it this way. I see it this way. There's a few questions we have to ask ourselves. Number one, is this big enough to divide us? Do we have to divide? Or can we stay together? Can we stay together? And can we, I I know some of you hate this phrase, but it's real life. Can we agree to disagree? Can we agree to disagree? Can, can we both put our shoulders together and peer into the eschaton and say, when we compare our minuscule problem, not minimizing the importance of it, but when we compare this problem, this conflict, this beef that we have with each other to the eschaton, it's small potatoes compared to the big picture. Can we say amen? Amen. And so we say, I'm going to bear with you. And I know, you're going to bear with my weaknesses, I'm going to bear with your weaknesses, but you know what? Love is going to cover a multitude of sins. And you know what's going to happen when we do that? You know what's going to happen? When we do the hard work, love is going to cover that scar and that wound, and it's going to bring us together. That's what's going to happen. So I'm under no illusion that Not avoiding things and dealing with it is going to make everything perfect in the moment. No, it's not going to make anything perfect in the moment. You know, my wife and I, uh, the Lord, I say this humbly, but the Lord prepared us for ministry many years before we got into full-time ministry by doing this very thing. We have had conflict with people that we refuse to walk away from. We refuse to walk away from it. And we said, we're going to press into the conflict, not for the sake of escalating it, not for the sake of agitating it, but for the sake of trying to bring resolution. And there are people, family members, that we have had conflict with that we thought, you know, I I don't know if we're ever going to recover from this. And on sabbatical this year, I can report to you that we had some of the best times with those very family members that we had conflict with. You want to know why? Because we did exactly what I said. You know what? We're not going to agree. It, we brought, the mediator brought them this far. The mediator brought us this far. Th- this is as far as we could go. As far as we could go. But both sides heeded the call. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, don't put off until tomorrow. Don't be led astray by the assumption that, oh, you know, let's just let sleeping dogs lie. That is one of the lamest things I've ever heard in my life when it comes to conflict resolution. Do not harden your hearts. That's conflict with others. But what about conflict in your own heart? If you ever find yourself, listen to me, if you ever find yourself, and I've been here before, it's it's a very dangerous place to be, if you ever find yourself not wanting to read Scripture, because you know what's in that passage you know what's in that bible reading and you're like i don't want to face it maybe you have a bible reading plan right because there's some sin that you're protecting right you have a bible reading plan and then you come to you know that day it's john 3 it's john the baptist um saying repent for the kingdom of heaven as it as at hand repent and you're like i ain't reading that i ain't reading that i'm staying as far away from that as i possibly can you're doing the same thing, friend. You're running away from conflict, the conflict in your heart. You know another way we do this? You know what today is? It's Communion Sunday. It's Communion Sunday. And you know what, what our tendency is? We've all done it. I ain't going to church today. Mm-mm. mm mm I ain't going. Why, friend? Well... I've got conflict and I haven't tried to figure it out, or I have tried and it wouldn't work out. I just can't come to the table and I, I don't want people to see me sitting there not going to the table, so I'm not going to go. And we discount what the Word of God can do to your heart in the midst of a worship service. We discount it. Beloved, this text is so important because one of the things it's saying is don't harden your heart. And you want, want to know what the, one of the biggest Um, I know this term in Spanish. I'm trying to think in English. Softeners. Softeners of your heart can be the Word of God. The Word of God. Uh, A few months ago, I was struggling with a situation. And there were people in this situation. That's how it works. And uh, I... I was determined, you know what, I'm not going to pursue these people. I'm just, I, I've given up. I'm done. I'm, done. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I'm closing my heart to them. And then I went into a meeting with a pastor who's uh, got much more years of seasoned experience than I do in the ministry. And I just listened to him tell me about his problems and his conflicts with people. And one thing that he said to me that is so, so, so incredibly hard and the flesh fights against it, but I needed to hear it and you needed to hear it. He said, Josh when I find myself in conflict with people, when it's people, even in my congregation, my tendency is to pull away from them. But he said, what I do instead is I press into them. I press into them. And what I find when I press into them is, number one, it's almost never as bad as I had made it out to be in my mind. It, they're, not, they're not saying the things and doing the things that I think they are. Our imaginations can run off the rails. And number two, I just find they're sinners like me. And then number three, as a result of one and two, I just find that my heart is just endeared to them more. And he was right. And after that conversation, I I went back and I opened my heart back up to those people. And I thank God that I did. But conflict in the heart is one of the most dangerous things. We talk about conflict with other people, but friends, if you're not opening the Word of God because you know what's there and you don't want to be confronted with it, or if you are not coming to service to where Christ is speaking through the Word of God and Christ's body and blood uh, symbolically are being put out to you to bring communion with you and your brother and sister, you're running away from the problem and you're not heeding What Moses is saying, you're not heeding what the psalmist is saying, and you're not heeding, frankly, what the author of Hebrews says the Holy Spirit is saying. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. And every single one of you in this place are hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit right now. Right now. And the Holy Spirit is telling you, do not harden your hearts. And if you harden your heart, if you harden your heart, beware beware. So the first way that we can harden our heart is by not prioritizing matters of the heart. Prioritize matters of the heart. Secondly, through a low esteem of the works of God. Look at verse 9. I'll just read 7 and we'll come to 9. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, and then watch this, and saw my works for 40 years saw my works for 40 years. One of the ways we harden our hearts is when we have a low esteem for the works of God. Here's what I mean by this. It's very very simple. The Israelites in the wilderness were looking at all the things that God had not done up until that point and what God was not doing in that moment, and they completely forgot about all the things that God had done to get them there, right? So remember, I said in Israel or in Egypt, what were they? They were slaves, right? A slave. They were slaves. I don't. You wake up in the morning. Uh, I don't want to go to work today. And you hear the crack of the whip of the Egyptians. You're going to work whether you like it or not. But I, I don't have an arm. I don't care. You have another arm. You're going to work. Okay. You're a slave, right? You're a slave. And what did God do? He, he brought them out of the house of slavery. He literally created a highway through the Red Sea. It's a miracle. There are walls of water on each side. He's bringing, like, before your very eyes, he, he makes a highway through the sea. And then when you get to the other side, He causes that, 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 that sea of judgment to come down and baptize, in a bad way, the Egyptians, Right? Like into real death, like they're dead. They're seeing the dead bodies floating up to the surface and the dead horses, and they're like, God has judged His enemies. These were your, your taskmasters, right? And then it's like, Israelites, you heard you heard about the showdown between Moses and the magician in the palace, right? The magicians come up, and they're like, oh, we've got our magic. And they take their staffs, and they turn them into snakes. And everybody's like, oh, oh, Horus and Ra, the gods of the Egypt, they are greater and superior to Yahweh. Yeah, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, the game's over. And then, you know, in, in a pinch, here comes Moses, and he turns his staff into a serpent, and then his serpent eats those serpents. And everybody's like, oh, oh, Yahweh is the true God, right? It's like, Israelites, you heard this and then we brought you out of Egypt. You saw all the plagues that were judgments against all the gods of Egypt. You saw this. We brought you into the wilderness. And yeah, I know the menu, it only had one thing on it, right? Man, I get it, okay? There's not a lot of variety. You're like, well, if we just had quail, I just, you know, if we just had quail, oh, you want quail? Boom, here's quail coming out of your ears, coming out of your nose. Okay, we don't want quail anymore, right? Okay, so God is providing for all these things, right? And, 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 you know, I was just thinking this morning in the shower. It's where I do my sermonizing. I was thinking how much the matrix is like the Christian life. Right? You get your red pill and your blue pill, right? Okay? Take the, you take the blue pill. Right? You're, you're in a pod. Okay? You're in a pod, and all these perceptions are being sent to you. I'm eating this nice steak. I'm with this lovely woman. I have this nice house and a red sports car. Everything's great. There's only one problem. What's the problem? It's not real. But then you... You take the red pill, right? And you're in this ship with a bunch of people that have body odor, right? And, you know, there's just funky smells, and everybody's mad at each other. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's just not very comfortable, but it's real, and you're free. That's the wilderness experience. And the wilderness experience now, which I think Daniel has the next text he's going to get into, what the author of Hebrews is going to say is the wilderness is a metaphor— for the christian life the christian life in this now time this present evil world is the wilderness you're in the wilderness right now and we're going toward the promised land which is the eschaton so you're in the prom you're in the wilderness right now you're going through the struggles and like the members on the matrix ship i don't know what it was called what was it called anybody nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar. thank you thank you my culture warriors are here they know right you're on, you're on the ship. You're in the wilderness. And like the Israelites, listen to me. You have two choices. Listen, you have two choices. You have two columns, okay? Here's all the bad things that are happening in my life. This and this neighbor and my person, that person at church and my elders. and the de- I mean, look at the deacons. Look what they did to this sanctuary. All these problems, you know, okay? Or you could focus on all the wonderful things that God is doing in your life yesterday, I was, I was just thinking, you know, there's, I, got, I got some problems. I got problems that some of you know about. I got other problems that none of you know about. And, I'm just, and I see the face of my children, healthy, big old smile. I see the face of my wife. I see my dog that though her hair is everywhere, she's very faithful and loyal, right? She still comes up with a wet nose and like still loves me, which is crazy, Okay. I, I, got a, I got a roof over my head. The wind was blowing. The storm was going through, and I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I got food in my belly. The Lord has saved me. I've got the eschatous. I was like, what are you complaining about? What are you, what are you quarreling about? You've got heaven. You've got heaven now, like, in your heart, the, the environment of the Holy Spirit in your heart. The environment of heaven is in you, and you're complaining about What? I'm not minimizing it, friend. Don't get me wrong. I'm not minimizing it. But I am saying in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, it just doesn't compare. It just doesn't compare. So we have a low esteem of the works of God. And I want you to pay attention to the Holy Spirit telling you this in the text. The question you should be asking yourself is, what can I be grateful for? What can I thank God for? What can I focus my attention and my energy on? But then thirdly, a a third way that we harden our hearts, and this is just a slight variation on the second one, is through a jaundiced view of God's ways. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Therefore, I was provoked in that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Now, what are my ways? It's real simple. It's God's providence. That's it. What is God doing in the trial that He has you in? What is God doing through the conflict that, like pressure, is creating diamonds? What is He doing? You see, the Israelites, listen, I come back to the faux rest and the real rest. The Israelites were so focused on the faux rest, the land and the the food and the water right now, and God, pay my bills, and God, give me a promotion, and God, give me more money, and God, listen... Uh, the, the past things that have happened to me in my life, uh, God, I wish that they never would have happened. Friend, that's the wrong perspective. Do you not realize that the things that have happened to you in your life, these are the things that are causing you to cling to God in a white knuckled kind of way now that is going to drive your trust in God so deeply that it's going to be a testimony to your children of what it looks like to trust God in the good, the bad, and the ugly. God's ways are this. I tell myself, I'm telling myself right now, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing. I kind of have some idea. I kind of see some things, but like I have no idea what you're doing. No idea. But I know this. I've talked to enough wise people. And and by the way, let me give a plug for talking to wise people. And let me give a plug, listen to me, for not just any wise person, okay? There's wise people and then there's wise guys. You want to stay away from the wise guys, okay? But, wise people here's the best kind of wise people for you Christians okay churchmen and church women listen to me church men and church women not church hoppers and please don't get offended at what i'm saying but there is a class of christian that every time and, and i'm i'm being humble here okay and i'm talking broadly globally okay every time there's something they don't like in a church they leave let me tell you something friend. There's something to be said for churchmen and women who have been seasoned over 40, 20, 30, 50 uh, years of staying in one church and seeing it out till the end. I'm not talking about churches that go woke. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your everyday run-of-the-mill problems that we're all going to face. Not being runners, but being those who stay the course. And when I go talk to those people, and I've talked to a lot of them in the last in the last 8 months, and every situation that I put before them, like, yeah, I've seen this before, Josh. I've seen it. It, it happens. It happens. What is the Lord teaching you? Well, what, right now, put your eyes on what the Lord is trying to teach you. Put your eyes on the, thing, on the things in your character, the things in your, uh, in, in your personality, the things in your customs and your disposition that you need to change. Focus on yourself, because I'm going to tell you something, Josh, and it's no, it's no uh, flash bulletin. But Josh, you can't change other people. Can I say that again? You can't change other people. You know, I I I drive myself up the wall in the past trying to think if I could just, you know, logic will win. Reason will win. If I just lay out this airtight argument with forty or fifty sub points, people are gonna see the (laughs) light. Nope. Ain't gonna happen. You know what? Sometimes God sovereignly takes people out of your lives for reasons known only to Him. And what are we left to do? Trust Him that He is good. I don't want to have a jaundiced view of God's ways. What is a jaundiced view of God's ways? Well, God must be against me, or everything must be wrong, or He's not going to uh, 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 deliver the goods that He promised. No, 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 no. He's delivering the goods He promised through these things. And now, finally, we got just a little time to do this, but all of this is very important. How do we prevent hardness of our hearts? How do we prevent hardness of our hearts? Well, number one, be circumspect. Look at verse 12. Look at what he says here. Take care, brothers. Take care. Paul says it a different way in the book of Ephesians. Be circumspect. You know what that means to be circumspect? It means don't be impetuous like Peter. It means go slow. It means examine your own assumptions. It means don't be pulled into stinking thinking. It means, listen, the kind of patience that you would want people to have with you, have with them. The kind of self-awareness that you expect others to have, have with yourself. Nothing tempers correcting other people or confronting sin more than an awareness of my own sin if I am aware if I like I've said it before I'll say it again uh, you know people come and they confront me about this that and the other thing I'm like oh friend it's even worse than you think <laughs> like, like it's way worse than you think and guess what so are you you're also worse than you think be circumspect this is what I tried to say in the sermon last Sunday. The first thing is self-awareness. The, the kind of judgment with which you judge others, you will be judged. You give the cold shoulder, you will get the cold shoulder. You assume the worst, will be, the worst will be assumed about you. You throw them under the bus, they will throw you under the bus. You don't give them a hearing, you will not get a hearing. It's the same thing. It's, it's the golden rule. Uh, do unto others if you, as you would have them do unto you. Be circumspect. Go slow. Don't make rash decisions. Secondly, Beware of unbelief. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. No, I'm sorry. I missed one. I didn't put it in your notes. Let me put it in your notes, okay? The second one, write it in there. Be hypersensitive to wicked thoughts. Please, this is really important. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Let's focus on evil, okay? Here's what you need to be uh, aware of so that you don't harden your hearts, okay? Be hypersensitive to wicked thoughts. I've used this example before. If I've got a Doberman pincher and a pit bull and I'm going to put them in a ring and they're going to fight, who's going to win? The one I feed. The one I feed. I starve the Doberman pincher. I feed the pit bull. The pit bull's going to win. Vice versa. Here's my question for you. What thoughts are you feeding? Are you feeding bitterness? Bitterness will win. Are you feeding deep suspicion? Deep suspicion will win. Are you feeding anger? Anger will win. Are you feeding ignorance? Ignorance will win. On the other hand, if you're feeding hope, guess what's going to win? Hope is going to win. If you're feeding faith, guess what's going to win? Faith is going to win. If you trust that God is good and you feed that, That will win. But what do we do? We go to the dark places and we turn the lights off. If there's any light, we turn it off. Oh, hope. uh, No hope. Despair. We feed despair. Beloved, there is a place for lament. But the Christian is never meant to stay in the place of lament. The Christian is meant to be pulled out of the valley of lament by the hope of Jesus Christ. And if all you're doing is staying and wallowing and and, and crying and pouting in lament, you're missing the best part. Lament through law, but gospel through grace. Jesus is meant to bring you out of the despair. So the question is, what thoughts are you feeding? If you're in conflict with somebody and all you're feeding your thoughts with is all the things through speculation that you think are true, then for you, they will be true. For you, they will be true. And you know what's going to happen? Two things. Number one, it will color everything that comes out of that person's mouth. It will color every action that that person takes. And secondly, and here's the worst part, it will describe and define the world that you live in. You will live in a suspicious world. You will live in a world where you trust nobody. Have fun with that one, friend. The world is broken, but it's not so broken that trust is completely decimated. I can trust people because I can risk it. I can take the risk and trust that the Lord is going to bring me through, whether they're faithful or whether they uh, are going to throw me under the bus. So uh, beware of an evil heart. But then, thirdly, beware of unbelief. You know what's easy? skepticism is easy you know it's hard faith is god good is he using these trials to make you stronger is he using these trials to deepen your faith yes i have to brag on jacob whitis i have to jacob whitis has a wonderful phrase he has a wonderful phrase and i commend it to you what is it brother tell us you can do it because you have to I think we need to get bumper stickers and t-shirts and hats the widest way. You can do it because you have to. Isn't that so true? I mean, whoever who said, like, God, just take me out of the game. No, I'm not taking you out of the game. I'm leaving you right there. You're, it, everything's clicking along just fine. This is exactly what should be happening to you Right here. There's another hit. There's another grace. There's another hit. There's another grace. He's bringing you through it. He's turning you into diamonds. He's refining the dross. He's making you gold. He's making you silver. This is what he's doing to you. This is what he's doing to us. And I, for one, am not going to give up. And I pray and hope that you don't give up as well. Beware of unbelief. Fourthly, oh, dude, I don't have enough time for this the necessity of the softening agent of the community of Christ. Look at verse 12. 12 and 13. Uh, Beware, brothers, lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now watch verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Flash bulletin. You can't keep from hardening your heart or from your heart being hardened by yourself. You need the community of grace. You need the community of Christ. And I want to do, say, say two things here. Number one, verse 13 exhort one another. How often? Just every Sunday? No. What's it say? Every day. Sunday's not enough, friends. That's why we try to do things during the week. That's why we have home groups. That's why we have play groups for the moms. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we do other things. But other than that, like it's why you guys have your relationships. You're texting each other. You're emailing each other. You're calling each other. You're praying for each other. We need to exhort one another on a daily basis. You cannot do it by yourself. And I want to make a connection between verse 12 and verse 13. He says, Beware of an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you leads you to fall away from the living God and he immediately on the heels of that goes to verse 13 and says, keep the community of Christ in your life. What does that mean? I'm going I'm to make a global statement that you can ask any seasoned Christian in this place if it's true and they'll tell you that it is. A precursor to falling away from the living God is falling away from the church of Christ. You distance yourself from the people of God, you're one click away from distancing yourself from the living God. I think our whole ministry here as elders has been trying to say that year after year after year after year. Starting with Joe Gwynn in 1977, okay, who believed in a high view of the church because he didn't believe that you could get to heaven without the church. He didn't even believe that you could get to heaven with just him prodding you along as a shepherd. He believed that the whole community needs the whole community to get to heaven. That's why Ephesians 4 says, the whole church makes the whole church grow. That's what it says. It's a long, obtuse sentence by Paul, but that's basically what he's saying. The whole church makes the whole church grow. So don't stop exhorting one another. Keep short accounts. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Press into the church. Don't fall away from the church. One of the things that we do as pastors when we see people absenting themselves is, listen to me, we have the audacity in our philosophy of ministry to go after them. Some people don't like that. Some people are like, leave me alone. I I, I could do it myself. I'm sorry, I don't believe that you can. I, I don't. I don't believe that you can. I believe that you are weaker than you think that you are just like I'm weaker than I think that I am. And I think that just like Moses needed Aaron and her to hold his hands and his arms up so that he could keep that staff up so that the Israelites could overcome the Amalekites, so we need one another to hold our arms up and all our other limp limbs so that we can overcome the enemy outside and the enemy inside. You need the community of Christ. And that's why we put a high premium on Lord's Day worship. Morning and evening, if the doors are open, you should be here. Because you need as much of word and sacrament and prayer as you could possibly get. As much as you could possibly get. And you know what else we need the community of Christ for? Because during the week, sometimes we're like puddle glums. We're like, this is bad and this is bad and this is And then we come on Sunday night and we find out that something that we've been praying about for four years has been answered. Wow! Right? Remember when I talked about, you know, the two columns, you know, the bad things and the good things? Israelites had theirs. We have ours. I mean, we, we've been praying for years that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. Boom, it's overturned. We've been praying for little John. Boom, here he is in the flesh. I mean, not right now, but he's, he's here, right? And he's walking around. He's riding his bike. He got that fit. like we've been praying for this, and we see these things happening. You need that. I need that. I can't do this by myself, and neither can you. Beware of deception. Beware of deception. Verse 13 through 15. Exhort one another as long as it is called today so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have all come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know what one of the things that sin does to deceive us? Once uh, once saved, always saved. Now I believe that, but I want to tell you something. I think it's a horrible way to express that doctrine. Because a more nuanced biblical way of saying it is, once saved, always being sanctified. And if you if you stop being sanctified, you should question whether you're saved. And where do we see sanctification happening in this church? And where do we see where do we see people having uh, their their masks ripped off their faces? so that they can stop being self-deceived as if they're, everything's okay, everything's fine, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. And they're like, oh wow, I, I've got some issues here, right here in the church. That's where we see it. You know where we do battle with sin and with deceitfulness of sin? At the table of the Lord, that's where we do it. We do ba- that's the battleground right there. You know where we do battle with deceitfulness of sin? Through worship that looks to the eschaton. That's where we do battle against deceitfulness of sin. Well, shoot. Last thing then. Let's go to Jesus. Look to Christ who is the true and triumphant Israel. I want you to notice in verse... Well, really, 16 through 19. He basically says, Who are these people who didn't make it into the land? Uh, Well, the Jews. And why? Verse 19. We see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You know why you won't enter heaven if... If you don't enter heaven, if somebody doesn't enter heaven, which is the real thing of what the land was standing for, you want to know why? It's not because you weren't good enough. It's not because you didn't try hard enough. It's not because uh, you didn't come to church as often as you should. It's because you weren't looking to Him who is perfect, and that is Jesus Christ. It's because you didn't see that Jesus is the true and triumphant Israel. He's the true Israel. And if you look to Him, you will be saved. If you look to Him, your heart will stay soft. If you look to Him, your heart will not be hardened. If you keep your eyes fixed on Him. And yes, man is not going to be able to do what Christ, the God man is going to be able to do. And so we look to Him, we look to Him, we look to Him in our worship, in our life, in our conflict, in our strife. We look to Him through faith. It could be faith as small as a mustard seed and you will still be saved. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for this passage. And I beg of You, Father. I beg of You as we go into worship this. I feel like there's a sense in which we've already been worshiping. We've been looking to Jesus. We've been listening to the Spirit tell us, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden it. Keep it soft but I pray that that worship would continue. I pray that any momentum that the Spirit has given our hearts would continue like a juggernaut right into worship, and that that juggernaut would force our eyes to be fixed on the heavenly places where Christ is seated at your right hand. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, receive our worship this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I I know it's time, but I just... If anybody has a question or comment, I do want to give time for that. So if if, if you have kids in Sunday school, please go get them, okay? Uh, Save our Sunday school workers from any attempted mutiny. Uh, Does anybody have any questions or comments? All right, you're dismissed.